my name's Graeme. Uh, welcome. If you are visiting, new with us, um, I kind of am too, a little bit new. It's been my second week, end of the second week in the job, and I'm still in the job. So that's so far so good. Well, that seems very high. I might go back. I'll put that there for a moment. Um, one of the things I've been in, in, you know, a couple of different contexts, been talking with people, there is understandably this sort of expectation when someone new, and particularly, I guess, when someone is new in, in, a, in a senior role, there's always an expectation about what's going to change. You know, new broom, sweeps clean, what are, the, what are the things? And I've been trying to actually diminish that expectation, really, about what, what we're doing and what might change, and rather talk about um, not, not what are we doing, but who are we? I, I think that's a much better place to start. Um, but one of the things I am is someone with a very big head. And so as a consequence, one of the things that changed, we had to get a new one of these. So there are some changes as a direct consequence of who I am, which is particularly well endowed in my scone area. Uh, and the other one, I'm sure you all got sick of the last time. Did you know the, this thing, me all the time? Drive you crazy? Yeah, it was driving me crazy too. Uh, so we'll see how this goes. So far, so good. Everyone can hear. Pardon? Seats big enough? Does it not? Oh. And I was nice to him. I think this, uh, we'll, we'll find out if the seat's big enough. Um, hey, really excited actually. Over the next few weeks, a uh, month or so, we're going to be in the Psalms. And we're going to take a look at a number of psalms. Actually, what we're going to do is each week have a look at the psalm that's in the lectionary. So as a church, one of the things that Cornerstone has done, uh, has done for a while now is be really intentional about journeying through Scripture together. And one of the... Um, together with us here, but also together with the broader body of Christ. And so there's this thing called the lectionary, which is just basically... Um, following sort of the Christian calendar. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But these readings that each day and each week, people from different churches, different streams, are all following the same, or reading the same kind of thing. Um, I think it's a really great idea. It's just, it's, it's frightfully easy speaking, if I can be honest for a moment, speaking from experience for a pastor or a preacher to get up and just find a verse and preach into it. Uh, whatever that is on their heart or mind at the time. It's frightfully easy to do that. But when you're intentional about journeying through Scripture and the narrative and, and the, the width and breadth of it, you've actually got to stay much more true to what God is saying out of it. Into it's called eisegesis, the big word for the day, eisegesis. When you read things in to Scripture, not good. Exegesis is when you look in and see what comes out from the heart of God. Really good. So that's one of the things we're, we're going to do. Um, and so we're going to follow uh, over the next few weeks. We'll have a look at the Psalms. And uh, I actually, um, I was actually going to preach next week. And then I saw which Psalm it was. We're going to do Psalm 133, which is one of my favorite Psalms. So I did my first captain's call to Josh and said, no, actually, I'm going to preach that week. So uh, sorry about that, Josh. But uh, wherever he is, what's that? Sir John. Sir John. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. You just stay in the corner. Just because you're 40 doesn't mean you're not one of the evergreens who gets to speak with wisdom at all times. 
Um, so we're going to look at Psalm 133 uh, in a moment. And um, there is a theme through, particularly actually as it happens, as we looked at the Psalms in the next few weeks, there's a really strong theme and a thread that runs through all of them. And actually, it's, it's not surprisingly, it's, it's one of the main threads that runs through the book of Psalms. So it's kind of helpful for us to uh, maybe just spend a couple of moments adjusting the, the lens, the goggles that we, uh, that we read Psalms through so that we're all sort of looking and reading it the same way. Um, so some of you uh, might be aware of this, but the, the, the church that our family was a part of in Victoria was a church that actually was the home base of the band, the uh, Sons of Korah. And again, some of you might be familiar with Sons of Korah. They are a band that, for the last 25 years, and that's how long the band's been going, or 20 years, sorry, have exclusively done the Psalms. They put the Psalms to music because actually Psalms are songs. They are, it's a book of songs. And so this group of individuals, and actually the, the lead singer was sort of his initiative with a couple of others. Um, his heart, his, he was our teaching pastor of the church. And so his heart, when he started 20 years ago, he was in Bible college, was to actually try and put these songs into the context of songs. And they've been doing it for 20 years and um, they you know, travel all around the world now. They were recently, actually, just a few weeks ago, were playing at a, um, a festival in, in uh, where was it? In the Netherlands, I think it was. Tw- uh, tw- 35,000 people. At it. It's a, it was a Pentecost um, festival and they were playing. It's amazing, amazing things. Um, so Matt actually wrote a book called Deeper Places about the spirituality of the Psalms. In a second, I'm going to actually read from the introduction, but I, I really encourage you to, if you really want to get into the Psalms and understand what the Psalms are, to uh, get a hand, to get, I don't get commission here, so I'm not, you know, not, I'm not doing this for any commercial gain. But this is actually a really great book um, that unlocks the spirituality of the Psalms. And so I'm going to read in a moment. But as Josh and I in particular were talking about what we, what we sense God is doing in us and, and through us at the moment, that we, the idea that of coming to the Psalms and looking at it as, uh, and we've, we've entitled it, Honest to God because there is an authenticity and a deep spirituality in the Psalms that's, that's great. And I'm just going to read something here from the introduction um, here of, of this book, and it really sort of explains where we're going and, and what, how we're going to look at the Psalms. The Psalms show us what authentic spirituality looks like. And in this sense, they should actually shape our expectations of the spiritual life. The ultimate purpose of the Psalms is not just to portray authentic spirituality, but to draw us into the experience of those who went before us. The Psalms belong to a corporate spiritual context in which the acts of God in the lives of people were celebrated and commemorated annually. Many Psalms were either written for or preserved specifically for commemoration festivals such as the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of First Fruits. Psalm 133 is a classic example that we're going to look at, at that idea of the way in which the Psalms were used. In these festivals, the people sought to find God in the present 
by connecting with his actions in the past. The Psalms were seen as something akin to tracks in the jungle cut by those who'd gone before. It's great imagery, isn't it? Finding a way through the jungle. Doesn't life feel like that sometimes? We're not left to work out the way for ourselves. The path has been trodden down and we're invited to walk in this path and continue where the psalm writers left off. If there was ever a time to search the Bible for a portrait of authentic spirituality, it is today. Our over-entertained modern minds are prone to adopt highly romanticised spirituality that inevitably leads to disillusionment. I'm going to read that again because there's a lot of big words there, but it's a very profound statement. Our over-entertained modern minds are prone to adopt highly romanticised spirituality that inevitably leads to disillusionment. We live in an imperfect world and we begin with highly dysfunctional spiritual capacities. Bit of a reality check, but true. Just because we can and should be experiencing certain heavenly realities does not mean we are. The wonderful thing about the Psalms is that they show us how to begin where we are. We can and we must begin where we are. This is the spirit of honest to God. This is where we're picking up this idea of being honest about where we are. What we need is not a heavenly spirituality, but an earthly spirituality that captures the present tension between what we have already and what remains unfulfilled. This is precisely what we have in the Psalms. There's some, there's some shocking parts in the Psalms. There's some bits where the writers of the Psalms, gets, their starting point is so honest. God, why have you abandoned us? Is a classic. It, I mean, that sounds almost heretical to write that as a Christian. You're not, you're not meant to say that. But it was where the psalmist said, well, that's honest. That's how I feel. And God is never afraid of our honesty. He's never afraid of our honesty. It's we often who are afraid. So this is what the Psalms does. We're going to be opening a few of the Psalms as we go forward. But looking at this, I like the phrase, this earthly spirituality. It's starting where we're at, being honest to God. So I'm expecting as we, as we do this and already in preparation to be uh, confronted. We, it's funny, we tend to go to the Psalms often thinking we'll go there for this beautiful poetry and imagery and it's all there and lovely and, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, he'll lead me, you know, he'll lead me by... It's, it's all in there. But actually, if you read the Psalms rather than cherry-pick the Psalms, it's actually quite confronting. It's quite challenging. But it starts with this honesty, and, and particularly in what's called the Psalm, Psalms of Ascent, which they lead up. They take us to somewhere, but they start from where we're at. So we're going to have a look uh, today at Psalm 133. And I thought we'd do... I grew up in the Uniting Church, and... Um, and there was this thing that we used to do a lot in the United Church that went actually, because we came after Christy and I were married, I came out of the United Church into a Pentecostal church. And one of the things, there was lots of changes. Who's ever done a big step sideways, you know, from one sort of church to another? Anyone experience the cultural shift there? So there was all these amazing bits. There were all these other bits like, what, what do you mean you don't do this or you don't do that? There was all these adjustments. And one of the things that I always missed was in my church, we, all, we used to read scripture a lot together which is not you know classically a sort of a pentecostal thing to do it it can be but i love it 
So we're going to read this. It's a short psalm. We're going to read this together. Now, I've actually gone a bit old school here and gone modern King James because I love the rendering of the modern King James. You might have the NIV version or whatever. You can follow. But let's, let's read it out together. Okay, we ready for this? It gets a bit messy. Everyone put their best speaking voices on. We'll try and sort of say it at the same time at the same pace. Ready? We, and we're not going to read Psalm 133 because that would be awkward straight away. So we're just going to get straight into Behold. Now, what I want us to do is when we go Behold, Behold's a, it's a great old King James word. Um, and it's a big word. So I want us to say it big. We're going to start off with a big Behold. Okay? Let's just practice the Behold. Oh, this is going to be great. Okay, here we go. Ready? One, two, three. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And they're usually teachers. Have you noticed that? Verse two. One, two, three. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. Fantastic. Really good. So we're going to just, this is a, it's such a good psalm. There's so much in, it's short, it's concise, but there's so much in this. And there's actually so much imagery. So we're going to just spend a little bit of time trying to get behind the words a little. Um, for some of that, we've got to get behind. There's a couple of metaphors or some imagery in there. There's a bit of geography we've got to do. Um, there's a little bit of language work we've got to do. So again, we're starting to feel like school, isn't it? But it's going to be good. So we're going to try and get behind the words and see what, um, uh, what God's saying to us. There's a picture here. So this, this is attributed to David. Uh, it's a psalm of David. And it's... Um, it's commonly understood that there's a context in which David is writing this into uh, and there's a kind of a picture in his mind about the family of God. So let's start with some pictures, uh, the, the kind of picture we could have about families. Uh, who in your family did the stage uh, photograph, everyone having to get dressed up in the same thing? Everyone done those sort of things? You know, those sort of pictures where we all stand very near? I've got a couple here. Uh, so I don't know who lived next door to that family but there's some I, f I feel like there's a lot of for the social worker and psychologist I feel like they're you know there's a lot of work to be done in that family look at granddad in the, I love granddad in the middle <laughs> what on earth is going on here he's just granddad's loving that is he uh, now there's the I know let's all get dressed up in skivvies it's 1992. This is going to be timeless. It's just too many, too many skivvies going on there. Uh, someone's in the naughty quarter. Isn't that just one of the saddest photos? And yet we're all laughing. Um, now, this one. Whoop, there goes the baby. <laughs> Such a good idea. Now, this last one I love. It's kind of my favourite. It's probably going to say a little bit about my sense of humour. But it's, you can just imagine the scenario. Um, so there's a family on a beach and they're going along. Let's, let's, let's capture one of those timeless photos of just 
family bliss where we're all walking along hand in hand and we're kind of, you know, we're just holding hands and with the kids in the middle and you've probably done this in swinging through the air. Okay, so the folk, ready, ready, set, go. And whoa, there goes the baby. <laughs> Isn't that great? You can kind of see dad already going, this is going to be hilarious. <laughs> I hope we capture this. So these are not the pictures that are in David, David's mind of family. Okay, this is not the picture uh, in, that's Psalm 133. If we're looking for a sort of a modern day picture, if we want to put, grab something, the picture that, da- that David is, is witnessing or viewing and writing and the context in which Psalm 133 comes out is kind of more like this. Or like this. That's a good one, isn't it? It's this. Because David's actually most likely writing this as he is remembering or even sort of witnessing the, the people of God, the tribes of Israel, gather for one of those festivals. Remember in that intro I read how the Psalms were often used uh, and spoke of these, these festivals. So five times a year the people of God would gather together and do exactly let me let me read it again the psalms belong to a corporate spiritual context in which the acts of god in the lives of people were celebrated and commemorated annually this is this christian calendar thing pentecost the feast of first fruits and so they would gather together as the big the family of god the people of god Uh, many psalms were either written for or preserved specifically for commemoration festivals so we're not exactly sure what the festival was but what would happen and many of you would be familiar with people would would journey from all over the nation to come together to to remember the goodness of god to to the family of god and they would gather and um there would be places where they would sort of gather regionally but ideally if you could get to jerusalem and be with the family it's like the family's getting together and so people would gather in the picture in which psalm 133 is written is kind of David looking over and surveying this and so it's it's this this kind of festival vibe where there's just just families and multi-generations and there's you know everyone's gathering together it's like he's standing on the walls looking at he goes behold this is good this is good I, I love the the uh the modern King James version, actually mostly for that word behold, which is not in the other ones, because the idea is that that word literally behold is be held by this, be gripped by this. It's like he's going, this is gripping. What I'm seeing holds me. Behold. Uh, And he looks out and he's looking at all these generations gathering. It's loud and it's messy and there's lots of smells and there's laughter and there's all this going on and he saying there is very something very very special and powerful about what is going on here and so he extrapolates he writes a song where he unpacks that um sorry it's hard to see green lime green was such a good idea on my computer screen it says behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to get, dwell together in unity. Okay, so brethren, we've got to do a little bit of work, particularly um, if you're sort of new to church or, or even new to biblical language. We've got to unpack that word brethren. Um, otherwise, in the 21st century, where everyone clings onto their spirit, 
to be offended and their right to be offended, lest we get offended about the gender, exclusive, uh, gender exclusivity of that. Brethren, that, that word is actually not talking about genders. It's actually talking... I, I studied German for about six months really badly in year eight, um, but I'm told in French and in Spanish, Italian, you've got words that are male and female. Is that true, is anyone? So, and so often you can have inanimate... Here's a man who speaks Spanish. You can have inanimate objects that are actually female words or male. There we go. Thank you. Excellent. I was going to use exactly that example uh, of how I'm... So there is a female word uh, that, that's a thing. So that's kind of weird. So it's kind of like that, where brethren is talking about a thing, not a person. It's talking about the gathering of a group of people who are kindred. It's the gathering of families. So when you see, particularly in, in, um, in modern King James, it talks about brethren. It's not kind of so quickly to get offended and say, oh, such patriarchal times. That was not was what, what was heard at the time. If you heard that, that word, not brethren, because that's in English, females would not have felt excluded from that because they understand it's talking about a thing, not a person. Okay, so that's... And that's why I think it's an absolutely legitimate translation in more modern translations, NIV, um, NLT, where it talks about brothers and sisters or the family of God. Absolutely perfect. It's not a word-for-word -word translation, but it is a thought-for-thought -thought translation. That's the thought that was in David's mind. Okay, so that's just a little... You know, we've got to get past that bit. It's talking about everyone gathering together. But it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is. So how good it is, he's saying... That, that language there is, this is right. This is kind of socially and morally kind of, it, it is, it, this is just the right thing to do. But then how pleasant is this beautiful word or picture about, it's a sensory word. It's saying, what's going on here just fires all my senses. It smells good. It's, you know, again, imagine the, going to Eat Street or somewhere like that. We've got all these wonderful mixtures of smells going on. It sounds good. I'm hearing laughter. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing, you know, cries of joy, I'm hearing shouting, all of that good stuff. It, it looks good, I'm seeing connection. How pleasant this is. All of my, in this context, all of my senses come alive. This is what David's doing there. So we've got to try and expand this out and get a sense of, he's really trying to underline this scene saying, this is just every single bit of it and every single bit of me is responding to us dwelling together in unity. The dwell together in unity is really important because He's pointing to the fact that every year, at, every year when people gather together here, it's, it's an example of individuals and families making choices to actually live together. Now, you've probably had this kind of experience perhaps in, in the friends that you journey through life with or, or if your family's really connected and kind of like, like mine is. I'm really blessed to have been brought up in a family where... Mum and Dad, before I could put language to it, I understood, uh, I understood this thing that was a value for us, which was when the family gets together, we're going to be there. And that was, for me, illustrated mostly by I had older cousins. Uh, there was a, I had a sort of part of the clan that lived in Canberra. And they, they were significantly older. So when I was in my sort of um, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, they were all getting married at that stage. And so, you know, it felt like there was at least one a year where we would do this ritual of packing up on Friday night, dad driving overnight to get to Canberra for the wedding, 
we would be there and then we would leave Sunday afternoon, drive back through the night and dad and mum and dad would be at work the next day because the family was getting together. And so I had this picture and then as I grew, it was very important for mum and dad to tell me what was going on. This is just a lived value for us. That was mum's side of the family and then dad's side of the family, had three sisters and every four years, all through my, again, that same sort of time, growing childhood and teens, Every four years, we would get together at the most boring place on the planet, Tugum. Anyone been to Tugum before? Just south of Harvey Bay, in the 80s. So it was like a fishing shack, and that was it, in a caravan park. But the family would get together. And so this is the kind of idea of dwelling, making choices to be together, to journey through life. So David, again, is witnessing that people are making choices here to dwell together in unity. They may not actually live close together, but there's a choice of the heart that means an ordering of priorities. And, and again, when, when the people of Israel are singing this song and remembering this, they're tapping into what it takes to get to Jerusalem. And so, so loaded in this language is this understanding, yeah, dwelling together in unity means choices that we make to be there because when the family gets together and when God's at the middle of that, we're going to be there. We're going to dwell together in unity. So that's the... It, it's, not a, it's not uniformity. If you know anything about Jewish culture, they're famous. They love a good argument. They love a good argument. And the, the classic statement goes, if you've got, uh, you know, four rabbis in, the, in a room, you've got five opinions. They love a good argument. They, they, they handle that kind of message in their culture well. It's not about uniformity. It's about choosing to be together and be community. Again, David is seeing this and going... This is right. And so he tunnels even more deeply into that on, this, on the next one here. He, he sort of ups the ante. Sorry again for my green. He says, It's like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. So who's this Aaron guy? And what's with the weird oil? Again, uh, there's heavy symbolism here that's all the way through Scripture about oil being the symbol for the Holy Spirit. And uh, the Aaron was, in fact, the, f- the first high priest. So Moses appoints Aaron to be the first high priest. The priest had this really important role in the spiritual life of, the fa- of, of God's people, which was, to kind of, which was to connect the nation to God. That their role was... Part of that was to relieve the ceremonial life and the religious practice and all of that. But it's a much higher calling. They understood that their role was to make sure that people were connected with God. And so it was a, it was a holy task. It was a sacred task that you would be set apart for. And in fact, it was a family that you were sort of born into. Now, all through Scripture, and again, you might be well familiar with this, but all through Scripture, whenever someone gets set apart for a task that's ordained that has a sacred sort of you know um, really special role they are anointed with all oil to say that what we are expecting of you is something you won't be able to do by yourself you'll actually need the the spirit of god to work through you and so to remind you of that to make that clear here is this symbol that we're pouring over you and so david is saying there is something supernatural that happens when this kind of unity when the choices are made 
and this kind of unity is formed, there is something supernatural going on. It's not just a nice time and some good photos and some good food. In this context, things happen that can't happen outside this context. Things of God happen. And so the imagery is of not just a little bit of Holy Spirit, but it's poured out. So David has reached for, okay, what's, what can I, how can I explain this in the way that has the greatest sense of God's anointing? And, oh, let's talk about Aaron, because he's the ultimate expression at that stage of sort of someone with a spiritual role of connecting people with God. And then let's talk about lots of oil. Let's use that imagery, because it's that important. See how you can just skate by this stuff sometimes and not pick out? David is like trying to, he's like trying to pour his heart out into how good this is and so that the imagery, imagery is of um, the oil being poured out and it just runs everywhere. It runs out through the idea of the, the priest and the high priest was that we understand that God pours something in you and through you, but it is to go to everyone. Is this imagery of it coming out everywhere and flowing. There's a flow. Now, living this side of the cross, who is now the high priest? Jesus is the high priest. There's no priestly class. We're all, actually, we're all priests now. We don't need anyone. I am not in that sense. Whatever title you want to call me for the job I do, but let's make clear, I'm not a priest. I don't stand between you and God, nor do the elders, nor do anyone. It's both your responsibility and your privilege to be able to enter freely and fully into a relationship with God that needs no mediating because Jesus has done that. And in that, in Pentecost, we celebrate the fact that also the oil has absolutely been poured out in a way David's sort of prophesying something that's going to come that we experience. So that oil that kind of makes things that feel impossible possible, it's available. So we live in this present. We live in this reality now. Something that David was, could only dream about. Beautiful picture. The oil, if not slightly messy. Now he talks about this guy, Herman. It's like the Jew of Herman. That sounds messy too. Herman's not a man. It's a mountain. It's actually two mountains here. Mount Herman, Mount Zion. Mount Herman is the tallest mountain in Israel. Here's Mount Hermon here. It has snow. You ever picture snow in Israel? Well, Mount Hermon has snow. The Jew of Hermon is not just, it's most likely, it's agreed it's most likely referring to not sort of the Jew that we have, although it includes that, but actually the snow melting. So the Jew of Hermon flowing out, actually what happens is when the, when the snows melt, it forms rivers that go down the north of Israel is, ver- is for a lot of the year, dry and a desert but have a look there the green grass here's what happens with the dew of Mount Hermon when the snows melt it flows out and it brings life anyone got any other imagery or scriptures that talk about things waters flowing and bringing life Ezekiel Isaiah this again it's, it's got this incredible prophetic wonderful picture of the fact that in this context, when people choose to dwell together in unity like this, when the people of God dwell together, because this is actually written to the people of God, it'll be an environment where things that seem impossible can, uh, impossible can be possible. It also 
be a source of life-giving water that will flow a long, long way away. So it says here, it talks about descending upon the mountains of Zion. Zion was a long way from him. A lot of stuff in between. So it's saying that it's going to actually create this flow of life-giving water through a desert that will bring life. And uh, some biblical scholars here comment on the fact that perhaps the intent is the idea that it goes out beyond the people of God. I like that. I, I, I think that's right. That we would expect that there's something going on in who we are together that creates an environment that flows out and brings blessing to people who aren't here. Who likes that picture of being the people of God? I'll tell you who else loves it. Jesus. He really loves it. So the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. And then it says, For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. Such a life-giving, affirming picture. The, the language and intent behind the word command, and this is where you know, Josh prayed it before when you talk about bestow. Uh, in some translations it has bestows. Again, the, the picture here is not so much the intent here is not so much that kind of God's waiting until there's a pocket of unity there. I'm going to, okay, there, there's some blessing there. And I can't wait, wait, there's some blessing there. It's like when this happens, he can't stop but blessing. It, it's like it's the environment in which the blessing of God comes and brings life. It's, it's like when you can't stop it, it's just the way it's meant to be. That's the idea of commanded there. Such an amazing picture of who the people of God are to be um, and I think this is where this is one of those ones where you could read through that and it's it's lovely and it's you know David's at his poetic best and it's so affirming and so aspiring and it would be easy to skip over perhaps the honest to God bit uh, but like I said in the way in which the people of Israel when they sung this and when they encouraged each other as they were journeying towards Jerusalem they understood that what was involved the commitments that were involved in actually dwelling together in unity they've, they've left their business or their farm they've, they're trusting actually while they're gone that everything's going to be okay for their financial security and their kind of their future they might, maybe perhaps there was some sick relatives who couldn't come that they were tending they've left them they're gathering they're going on a very difficult journey it takes quite a while to go there there is such a commitment that is inherent in the context that the the first hearers the first singers of this would be all over that we might miss and so lest we miss the honest to god bit i've um i want to suggest that there's maybe there's some commitments here we look at the idea of dwelling together in unity there's three things that, that seem apparent to me that are commitments we need to make. If we are to be, if we are to reflect this as the people of God here in this location, then there's three commitments we've got to be honest with ourselves and honest to God about that we're prepared to make. The first one is actually just a commitment to turning up. This is kind of obvious, isn't it? This is that idea of when the family gets together, the family gets together. Um, it, it might be really easy here with, with a number of the th these things I'm, I'm talking about is to sort of think of the obvious things, so turning up on Sunday morning. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a part of it. But it's actually turning up emotionally. 
it's turning up because who knows I, I think we all know you could be here every single Sunday but not turn up do you know what I mean so that, that's what I'm saying turning up for each other uh, uh, the challenge of again if you're sort of uh, you know classic pastor he's going to whip us about not being in church on Sunday you know if you hear that oh, please hear my heart that it's not that it's not that at all uh, I know how difficult it is to turn up anywhere you know and and there will be seasons there are seasons of your life where it becomes particularly challenging but having been around the around the block a couple of times now it's often what happens after those seasons of life that's about turning up because so many people that I've seen and I'm sure you could name them as well who they go through that season and then they let that season define their trajectory moving forward so you know there's there's we all have challenging seasons which may mean that we know that for a period of time getting to Sunday you know regular might be two out of four or one out, whatever it is but what happens after that when that season's over have you now redefined that season or are you going to turn up again uh, so so hear the graciousness that I'm I'm saying that about turning up it's, it's not about how often you're here or other things but it's about turning up to the relationships and the commitment of being of dwelling together of dwelling together so there's a commitment to turning up. There's a commitment to live sacrificially. It just costs that, that kind of unity where we all go, wouldn't that be amazing to be a part of a church like that? Well, that just costs sacrificially. And again, temptation, here we go. New pastor, so he's whacked us with it being here on time. Now he's whacking us with the tithe. Actually, I'm not at all talking about tithing or giving or what we just did before that. I'm, I'm not at all talking about anything. That's a separate thing. We might talk about that another time. But what, that, that's about how you order your financial world to reflect the fact that you understand that God is the source of all good things and you are but a steward of what you have and what you decide to give in your, to demonstrate in your, how you order your financial world, whether that's 10% or 5 or That's a whole other thing we're not talking about. I'm talking about living sacrificially, just giving. I've got my friend Robo over there and we've been friends since we were teenagers. In the first 10 years that Christian and I were married, I reckon we moved 11 times. And this bloke, if he didn't turn up 11 times, it would have been 10 times. He just kept turning up and sacrificially to help us. I mean, I'm sure he got sick of moving that fridge that we had a really heavy fridge there for a while. We probably had a bunch of things where he went, I'll tell you what, I'm tempted to just throw this thing out because I've never seen them use it and I'm not going to move it one more time. But he just kept turning up. Because that's who he's been... He, turning up and giving sacrificially and, and so we have we've we've dwelt together in unity over a long period of time because he just keeps making choices to do that when you've got a group of people doing that for each other and and i've experienced i mean i'm looking around i i could go through and give stories for so many people here in the same way and and i i pray and i trust you've been a part of a a family or a church or this church where you experienced that but you've got to keep making that choice You've got to keep making that commitment because when you do something supernatural happens in the midst of that. You will be the answer to someone's prayer. You will be the answer to You will be the miracle in someone's life when you make that commitment to live sacrificially. Oh. And the last one is to live honestly. To live honestly. 
we actually got together last night. Our family got together because um, my sister's oldest son turned 18. And so we actually had one of those messy, rowdy kind of family get together. So there's, um, I, I, so, again, some of you know this, if this is old news. I've got a kind of a weird family where it's a blended family where my stepmom, where my dad married the mother of my best friend. True story. It's a bit Tasmanian, but let me just flesh it out for you. So Duncan and Duncan and Trish, the Browns were a part of this fellowship for quite a while, uh, many moons ago. Duncan was a good mate. He was groomsman at our wedding. He left his shoes in our car. He was living at Rockhampton. At that stage, my dad, who'd been widowed, and his, uh, his mum, his mum came, to, we were on honeymoon, so his mum, Duncan's mum, came to pick up his shoes from my dad's place. They met. The next year, I was groomsman at Duncan's wedding. The following year, we were both groomsmen at our parents' wedding. That was a trip. That was weird. So we've got this wonderful extended blended family. Um, probably like many of you, you know, there's now each of the families, there's three kids each, so there's 14, there's sort of 20 of us. And each, each time we celebrate an 18th, we've now got three of the, that next generation who are over 18. So it's always what we're, as we dwell together in unity, we had this big conversation about how the dynamics are changing year by year, you know, and it's, it's, it's glorious. Now imagine in that scenario, if I turned up and I said something like, you know how I'm a part of the NASA, NASA space program? Well, they've just invited me to go on to the next shuttle. The family who have dwelled together would go, what on earth are you talking about? And see through what I was trying to present straight away. Now, that's a ridiculous extreme, advantage, uh, extreme uh, example. But there's no way I could pull that kind of rubbish because they know me. So I've got to live honestly with them. And that is a blessing. Because actually, they wouldn't love me any more or any less if I was an astronaut or not. And so we, you know, I'm not an astronaut, just to be clear. In case you were confused, I think there's some weight restrictions that I've just stumbled over a few times. <laughs> but when we live honestly with each other, we are our real selves. And the blessing of dwelling together in union with people, God, is that it doesn't matter who we are. There is a radical acceptance and love. That it doesn't matter what the story of your life is. It's valid. It's appreciated. It's accepted. Now that is an environment that, you know, amazing things happen when people are just radically included. And the people of God, through the church, whether that's been, whether that's been historically the, sorry, the, the, the nation of Israel, God's people, the church now, are meant to live, be a community where radical inclusion is lived out. And in that environment, people don't feel that they need to put a false pretense for it because it's got no currency. Again, you've probably all been in environments where actually the pretense of who you are has a lot of currency and so the temptation to just turn the knob up on parts of your life because you know it's actually going to get some currency, it's, it's, not, it's exhausting for a start. Uh, it's not edifying. You've got that feeling that everyone's doing that so the real relation... Do, do we actually really know each other or do we, are we relating to the versions of ourselves that we're putting forward? That 
That is not an environment where blessing flows, is it? So when we just don't give, we don't, in love, allow people, or, or they, they don't feel the need to put those pretense forward, that, the, the release and the freedom that comes in that is amazing. So as, as we finish, I'll get the band to come on up as we close. Um, I, I really invite you uh, to join with me as I, again, this week have been sort of preparing and challenged, uh, challenged anew about the honesty that the Psalms, the, the authentic earthly spirituality that it puts forward. Um, I've been challenged anew about that and invite you, I, I think if this is spoken to you today, that perhaps God... I want to encourage you that God might be asking you what do you need to turn up to? to if, if you want to make the choice to live, to dwell in unity, if this is going to be a community of people or perhaps there's other communities, your family, the wider body of Christ. Again, this psalm is written to the people of God. So there might be some context where the expectation would be that you would dwell in unity, in deep love where supernatural, amazing things, things that would seem otherwise impossible become possible, where life flows. In those contexts, what do you need to turn up to? What does turning up look like? What does living sacrificially look like? Is there something that God is asking you to just live a little bit more sacrificially? Is there some honesty that's needed in some relationships? I think Rob's word before actually again really flows with this about, is there some honesty that's needed in some relationships where you say, you know what, there's some stuff between us and I'm going to, uh, I've previously, this is what we tend to do, we tend to think, I, I can't see how that's ever going to be resolved. I can't see how that could ever be better that relationship or that scenario. I, I, don't, I can't imagine how I'd ever feel not so wounded and hurt by what they did. Well, when the impossible becomes possible, maybe there is a way. Maybe what's required is for you to live a little lot more honestly, to turn up to that relationship a little bit more and to look at what you can give in that relationship. It's actually been my experience, and you know, I've been around... What, we're a Pentecostal church. We, we believe, we love to celebrate the, the supernatural, the things that are impossible, healing and great steps of faith and provision and, you know, things the, the impossible are made possible. My experience of life is that actually the stuff that people really think is impossible is deeply personal and relational. People are much more likely to perhaps believe for some healing or incredible provision of something or some breakthrough than they are to go, that relationship with my sister that can be whole again. I think that's what people carry around. And in the context of true community, we become those who say, no, that's possible. That's possible. If we turn up, if we give sacrificially, and if we're honest. So I invite you, just to close your eyes now. Again, I, I'm just mindful of that that invitation, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, I'd invite you to come now. Because sometimes that these sometimes, particularly when we're talking about relationships, there's there's a timing issue. There's some trickiness there. 
as a way of doing things. I wouldn't want to presume to say whatever relationship that is broken or messy that's been that way for 10 years, you've got to walk outside and just confront now. I'm not saying that. I am saying that I think the Holy Spirit will quicken something to you. And so my prayer is just, Holy Spirit, come. Show us where we need to turn up, where we need to give sacrificially, where we need to be more honest. Give us a confidence. Instill us with the confidence that David has in Psalm 133, that when we dwell together in unity, there is an anointing that makes the impossible possible. There is life that will flow like water in a desert, that there is a blessing that will come that will lead to things of eternal value. Holy Spirit, come. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission.